a Podcast One production. Questions. Barbara Arrowsmith Young has lived an amazing life. It hasn't all been easy. Uh, as a youngster, um, she faced some real challenges to her learning and fitting into the school system. Uh, ironically, or perhaps because of that, she's now gone on to be a game-changing educator around the world. Let's find out a little bit more. Barbara Arrowsmith Young, author of The Woman Who Changed Her Brain, welcome to The Big Questions. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, your your fascinating book starts with the story of Leova Zazetsky. Tell the listeners about Comrade Zazetsky. So, uh, Leova Zazetsky, in the Battle of Smolensk in 1943 in Russia, had a very localized head wound. And... Uh, several years later, Alexander Luria, a Russian neuropsychologist, wrote a book called The Man with the Shattered World. And this was Leova Zazetsky's journal, his account of what went wrong after the head wound, and then Luria explaining what was going on in Zazetsky's brain as a result of that injury. Because he, he lived for years and years onwards, didn't he? But, but he had trouble with some of the real, what we would just consider the fundamentals of interacting with the world. Uh, absolutely. And as I read, uh, someone in August of 1977 handed me this book, which changed my life. And I dedicate my book to Luria because really he did save my life through writing this. And as I read Zazetsky's journal describing all the things he couldn't do after, you know, a bullet hole in his brain, I realized we're living parallel lives. I knew I didn't have a bullet in my brain, but now I understood what my learning challenges were because Zazetsky was describing in his journal that meaning was ephemeral. It would disappear into a mist. He lived in a fog. In my journal, several decades later and halfway around the world, I was using exactly the same language to describe my problems. So, so Zazetsky, for example, and yourself when you were young, was the uh, one example would be you'd, you'd struggle to attach words to things. You'd, you'd visualize a thing and you just couldn't remember what the word was for that or, or uh, matching up items with words and, and numbers with their appropriate positions and things and, like that? That's great. And meaning. I couldn't, I just didn't understand what things meant, right? So I couldn't be having this conversation with you because you would ask me a question. I would play it over in my mind for like 5, 10, 15 minutes to try to think, what on earth is he asking me? And obviously that was lim limiting to having a conversation. So I really, I, I was incredibly shy. I was very fearful. I was afraid if anybody would ask me anything because it's the part of the brain that, that translates the words into meaning that wasn't working for me. And that was the same thing after Zazetsky had his wound that he, he couldn't do. I couldn't tell time. I was 26 years old. I could not read an analog clock because to interpret time, you have to understand the relationship between the hour hand and the minute hand. After his wound, Zazetsky couldn't tell time. So I knew after reading that that it was my brain that wasn't working and I had to do something about that. And, and when you would have been in your younger school years in the 50s and 60s and I remember even my, my time in the 70s, we weren't great as a community in accepting those who were a little bit different or faced challenges. I mean, in my day, you just moved on. We were re really, the system was quite unsympathetic to the 
to the different sort of challenges people might face. It, it definitely was. I mean, I was identified in grade one uh, by my teacher. And at that point, there wasn't even the concept of a learning difficulty or learning disability. So I was identified as having a mental block. And being quite concrete, because I had problems with comprehension, I actually thought I had a wooden block in my head <laughs> that made learning difficult. I mean, later I learned, no, I didn't have a piece of wood in my head, but I had blockages in my brain that did make learning difficult. And I feel like in grade one, I was given a life sentence. My teacher told my parents, don't have high expectations for your daughter. She won't amount to much. And that all of her educational career will be a struggle. And the last part was true. I mean, all of my educational career was a struggle because you have to understand things. I just memorized them like a little parrot and put things down on paper, not knowing had I answered the question correctly. And sometimes I get 100% because I made a good match. Sometimes I get 10% because I made a bad match. And my teachers would conclude that I hadn't worked hard for that 10%. But I worked equally hard to get that 10% as the 100%. So what was it when you were reading that book? What was specific? You've mentioned something like the time, for example. What was it in in the story of Zazetsky that fitted so well with what, what you'd experienced? Well, he, he's, he talked about how he struggled with understanding his world, and I had struggled from birth with understanding my world. He couldn't understand relational concepts, so under, over, before, after, all of that, bigger than, less than, I didn't understand those. After his wound, he couldn't understand them. Before his wound, he'd been gifted at mathematics. After his wound, he couldn't understand fractions because it's a relationship of a part to a whole. I could never understand fractions. He couldn't tell time. There's a lot of people who don't understand fractions, so I should point out. <laughs> well, that's, that's correct. But, you know, to be 26 and not be able to tell time, hmm. not it was because I didn't understand the connection or relationship between the hour hand and minute hand. There were no connections in my world. There wasn't cause and effect. I didn't know why people did things. I didn't know why things happened. Like my world was this confusing mass of events that I had no understanding of, no control over. I just, I, I felt like adrift, lost. And Luria, or not Luria, Szeski in Luria's book talked about that same experience, that same feeling. You, you write, I will never forget the palpable excitement I felt as I read Luria for the first time. There was that that much of a connection. Oh, huge. Because, I mean, I've been struggling for 26 years trying to understand why I didn't fit in, why I didn't understand things, why everything was such a struggle. And nobody had an answer for me. And I thought, maybe I'm crazy. I mean, maybe I am. But um, this now was my aha moment of this is my problem. And to solve a problem you have to understand its basic nature. Now I understood the nature was my brain isn't doing what it's supposed to do. That's the first step. Great. Now you realise, okay, I'm not the only person who's ever been like this and I feel a kinship with this Russian soldier from 20 years earlier, but where do you go from there? How do you then change or improve your own capacity to attach meaning and learn and understand? You talked about time. You actually set yourself a sort of brutal testing regime to understand time, didn't you? I, I did. And and the second piece of the puzzle was the work of Mark Rosenschwag at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And he was looking at this idea in the 60s of neuroplasticity. And he was working with rats because they're easy to work with. And he found if you give rats lots of stimulation, lots of toys to play with, they became better learners on mazes. And a maze is like a rat intelligence test. Then he looked at their brains and he said that stimulation led to physiological and functional changes in the brain, which led to better learning. They had more dendrites, more branches on the neurons, leading to more synaptic connections, better neurotransmission, more neurotransmitters, more glia cells and large capillaries. So he argued stimulation leads to changes in the brain, which is neuroplasticity, which leads to better learning. 
that was the next piece of the puzzle. Because neuroplasticity challenges the other theory, as you write it here, that you're, you're dealt a certain hand and that's the way it goes and you, you play that brain hand for the rest of your life. Yes, and that's certainly what the belief was. This was 1977 when I got Luria's book, and I went to my professors and said, wow, I know what my problem is now, and I know what I think I need to do. And they said to me, learning difficulties have nothing to do with the brain, which I'm not sure what they thought they had to Hmm. do with. And they said, and even if it does, there is no neuroplasticity. Our brain is hardwired. So, you know, basically they discouraged me. But my father was an inventor and a scientist, uh, he had a numerous patents, and he had this belief that he instilled in me. He said, if there's a problem in the world and no solution currently, he said, it's your responsibility to go out and find a solution. And he said, don't be limited by conventional wisdom. If the rest of the world says you can't do it, don't listen. This is how science goes forward. So I remembered what he had told me and thought, I need to try. And I was desperate. I was now, you know, 26. I saw no future for myself. Nobody was going to hire me. I was, I lived in lag time. I didn't live in real time. I was so slow at understanding or processing. Mm. I figured, like, there's no future for me. So I'm desperate. I'm going to try. No idea if it will work. And so I created this first exercise using clocks. You'd create these sort of flashcards with the time written on them. And you'd flick over the cards and try and you'd talk us through yes. that, 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 yeah, so, that exercise yeah, you said so for yourself. I would, and I had to have somebody help me because I couldn't tell time. So I would draw a clock face and I would draw hands on the clock face. And, and then I would put the time or have somebody put the time on the back. And, you know, I'd be going through a hundred different clock faces, trying to read them, trying to read them accurately. Um, and over time, and it took me a lot of time, I got really accurate and really fast. Initial, like, initially, you cheated a little bit, didn't you? Oh, that was that was earlier on when my mother was trying to teach me how to read and write. Right. I, yes, I would have her hold the flashcards up uh, in front of the window so the sun would shine through so I could read the answers. <laughs> yes, but but my mother was no fool. She started putting her thumb over that there answer. You go. Yes, she she caught on to me quite early. But so, uh, so after yeah. thousands and thousands of goes of looking at these flashcards, you got better at. Telling the analog clock time? I did, and now I could read a clock, which was great, Um, but that wasn't my initial intention. I wanted to see if I could force my brain to process relationships. So I realized, okay, I have to make it more complex because I wasn't feeling change in my brain, in my my understanding of the world, so I added a third hand, a second hand, and that was great. Now I could read, you know, hour, minute, and second hand, but didn't feel change in my functioning added a fourth hand, which is a fraction of a second. And when I mastered that level, where it means I was just 90% accurate and as fast as was humanly possible, processing four relationships simultaneously, my world changed. I knew there was human neuroplasticity. And yeah, this is the interesting thing. Talk through more of that, that you're developing a hyper ability to tell the time on an analog clock mm-hmm. spilt over into your capacity to interpret other things? Yes, because, again, going into Luria's work, and I read his book, Problems in Neurolinguistics, and he talked about somebody that has the problem that Zazeski had or the problem that I have in that part of the brain can't um, make connections between things. And he talked about they can't read an analog clock. So I thought, okay, how do I make my brain work? Not that I want to learn how to tell time. That was a byproduct. But how do I force my brain to understand relationships? So I thought, make it 
see relationships on a clock. You know, that, that was, I believe there are multiple windows in to stimulate brain function. This was the way I found in. And it was the idea of, of making it more and more complex, more and more difficult, almost like weightlifting in mm. a sense. You know, you start with five pounds, then 10 pounds, then 15 pounds. For me, the aha moment was, you know, processing four relationships on that clock accurately and simultaneously that that it changed my brain's ability to process and understand relationships. I could now understand conversations that I'd never been able to understand before. I became part of human discourse for the first time in my life. I could actually have a back-and-forth conversation with somebody because I could understand what they were saying. Before, I'd listen, I'd go away, I'd memorize because I had a verbatim auditory memory. I'd memorize it walk away, play it over my head. It might take me an hour, two hours to understand. That person didn't wait for two hours for mm. me to understand. Now I could understand in real time, make an appropriate comment, and have a dialogue. It, it was profound. Those other areas of perception in your life, did they did they change slowly or did you just wake up one morning and suddenly understood everything everyone was saying to you? What was it like to go through that, that process of sensing that changing? Yeah, so I think, I mean... I think all the things that I did to get up to that point were necessary. It was kind of almost like digging myself out of a hole until, you know, I could access meaning. Um, but it was pretty dramatic at, at that point with the, what I call the four-handed clocks, where um, it was as if, you know, all of a sudden I did wake up that morning. I, I mean, obviously after doing an awful lot of work, um, and I could read a page in a book and I could understand it as I was reading it. Before, I could read that page 10 times, 15 times, 20 times. And what Lurie talked about is you never can verify meaning. You're always hypothesizing. So you're working, walking around in a world of uncertainty where the ground is constantly shifting under your feet. Now, I could read the page and understand it. I could connect it to the next page. Um, you know, to test myself, because I had access to a philosophy library, I just started pulling books at random off the shelf, and I'd read a page and understand it. Then I'd pull another book. And eventually, I had 100 books around me because I thought, maybe it's a fluke. Maybe I'd picked a really easy book. But after 100 books, I realized, actually, my ability to understand changed, um, my ability to understand conversations. I went back and taught myself all of mathematics from grade one right up to college. And now, instead of memorizing formulas and plugging in numbers, I understood from first principles. And the thing that was very profound, which I hadn't anticipated, because I have a really strong um, visual memory, every night as I went to sleep scenes would play over in my mind's eye from age four and five and six and seven. I think, oh my gosh, that's why that happened. That's why this person did that. It's like that fractured and fragmented sense of myself started to integrate into a whole person. It was very profound. The interesting thing for me here is that when you go through that change and you unleash now your full potential, you're clearly a very intelligent woman and the way the way you you think and and the drive that you have and the capacity that you have is clearly just from this conversation so far well above average that's a potential that was locked inside of you that never would have been realized if this process hadn't been undergone and you just would have been another slow dopey kid who grew into a slow dopey add-on and was never going to amount to you do you know what yeah. i mean oh, I, absolutely but it would have been worse than that i would not be here I, w I was planning how to end my life um, mm. at that point because I saw no future for myself. So, uh, yeah, so that's why I dedicate my book to Luria because I owe a life debt to him. I, I wouldn't be sitting across the table. Um, and I meet students as I go around the world that, that f are, feel so much despair that, you know, they, f they feel they just can't go on in their life and no child should feel that way. Be because we constantly hear in a host of different conditions, don't we, that when if a child gets the right intervention and the right, the right development and support 
you're sometimes unlocking you know phenomenal minds that were just trapped uh, within themselves up until a certain time in their life. Absolutely. I mean, we I think of one student that I worked with a few years ago, gifted spatially, mechanically, huge right hemisphere abilities, but his prefrontal cortex, which is that mental initiative, drive, planning, problem solving, you know, just wasn't aligned with the rest of his abilities. You know, so we... He strengthened that through the program. He went on to come second in the world designing a racing car for Michelin. <laughs> you know, so that was unlocking potential. And so this is what we talk about now, because so you, you, you have this change in your life, but now many years on, yes, you're talking about students in your program. Where did the incentive come from for you? And what was the process of deciding to share what you'd learned and try and, and help other people change their lives? It was really pretty immediate after I saw the 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 benefit to me. And that was just one of three exercises I created for myself because I had multiple learning difficulties. I thought, I need to take this work out into the world uh, to help others that are struggling. And as I started to do that, not everybody had the same problems that I did. So that's where I started to go back into Luria, try to understand what that person's difficulty was, create a, an exercise for that. And sometimes the exercises ended up in the wastebasket because they, they weren't effective. But over time, working with a, a large number of people, um, the, the work evolved to address now 19 different cognitive functions from the person that can't recognize and understand nonverbal cues to the person that can't hold auditory information, person that can't hold visual symbol patterns. Um, so, and I think, I mean, I grew up in a family, you know, where, you know, my mother was very social action oriented and she believed we need to be of service to others. So it was kind of in my, my upbringing that, you know, if, if, you develop or understand something that can help other people, it's your, again, your responsibility to take that out into the world. So your program now runs in multiple schools, almost 100 schools. Yeah, 90 schools in 10 countries, and there are 19 here in Australia. And so is it, are they schools that you've set up or schools that already existed that incorporate some of your program? How does it work? Schools that are already set up and and we train the teachers and then the teachers come back and, and work with the students within those schools. That, that's my vision is to make this work accessible around the world. I have my school in Toronto and then uh, Peterborough where I grew up. So I have two schools that that I effectively uh, own and run. But my vision is to train teachers around the world to bring this program and make it accessible to the students within their communities. And and how does a typical student hear about a school like this or, or find themselves at a school like this? Um, uh, sometimes it's through coming across the book um, or, you know, people Google now, like an, an internet searches, word of mouth. Um, I mean, we're essentially a small organization and, you know, our resources go into, we're doing some really exciting research uh, with researchers around the world, um, program development. So a lot of it is, you know, is is probably really word of mouth, you know, so one parent talks to another parent um, about the work and the benefits it's had for their child. Tell us, tell us a story about about a student. Yes, well, I mean, I think about in chapter eight of my book, Lost in Translation, which talks about the difficulty I had. But there's mm. little Zachary, right? Mm. Who came to us in uh, in grade one um, and talk about the clocks difficulty. He couldn't even ask the question why. You know how little kids ask why, mm. why, why. He didn't have why in his vocabulary. It was what. That's how concrete he was. What, what. Um, and when we were training him on the clocks. I mean, conceptually, he could not get it. We had to actually enact out a clock with him, with his body and the teacher's body, um, 
but over time, and he'd had all sorts of diagnoses that were incorrect because he he was just so confused. I mean, if you saw a video of him, he just he looked totally spaced out. Um, now he's, I think he's in high school. Uh, I mean, he plans his parents' vacations. He reads the rental contracts. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, does stock trades. Like, he can reason. He can understand his world. I mean, whereas before, his world was so confusing and overwhelming, you know, he, he didn't even play as a child. Like, he didn't, he didn't even have the wherewithal to know how to play. Um, so, you know, he's, and, but he's a typical example. Or I met a, a student who's in grade 11 up at... Um, uh, town in Townsville, so she's at Charters Towers at Blackheath and Thornburn, where the program is. And she said her strategy was because she didn't understand what people were saying. Mm. She'd put a book in front of her face so you wouldn't ask her a question. But she said, I, you know, I didn't understand the book either, right? But it was her defense mechanism. She said, now I understand my world. Like I understand people. I understand what I read. And she's getting A's and B's in in year eleven. So to me, the power is um, it. It, as you said, it opens potential. And a lot of the, I work with a lot of adults as well, and they talk about how they don't dare to dream. At a certain point, they shut down their dreams because, as I didn't, they don't see a future for themselves. And I think what this work allows people to do is not only dare to dream, but they can actually realize their dreams because they have the cognitive resources now uh, to do that. You've walked us through the analog clock exercise regime. What's, what's another exercise aimed at a a different part of mental function that you could explain to the listeners? Okay, so there's a part of the brain that I call symbol recognition. Another researcher calls it the brain's letterbox. So this is the part of the brain that you look at a word, say cat, you can kind of close your eyes, see it on a blackboard. So you hold the visual symbol pattern, and it's critical for reading, um, for spelling, even learning like chemical equations, math formula. So it's, it's, you know, holding the visual image of, of symbols. So a child, if there's difficulty here, will you know look at a page of print and they'll see the same word multiple times. They won't recognize it. So the exercise that we've created has, uh, I think, 44 different languages built into a computer program from Telugu, Sinhalese, Army, Armenian, Burmese, Amharic. And the idea is the student is looking at this... The, you know, symbols that they don't recognize, so they're not familiar. They have to go through a whole process. They start with, you know, a simple symbol, one symbol, closing their eyes, visualizing. By the end, they're holding eight Chinese characters in their mind's eye. So the idea is we're trying to strengthen that cognitive function to learn symbol patterns. We're not teaching them how to read English. We're not teaching them um, sounds with English. We're changing the brain's capacity to recognize symbol patterns. By the time that student can hold eight Chinese characters in their mind's eye, English actually looks pretty easy. But this is this is sort of the So, the so you, you're, not, you're, not, you're not teaching this is the word for cat. You're teaching the brain's ability to hold an image. That's correct. So that when it sees the word cat... It's got the capacity to hold that image and go, oh, that's the word cat. That, that's correct. And some of the times the students will say, hey, I'm struggling with English. Why are you giving me Armenian or Amharic? <laughs> and I say, because if I gave you English, you could put maybe sound to it. You could put meaning to it. You can compensate. We You'd try be to cheating without realizing you e- were. Exactly. So we try to take all the compensations away, which often have been the lifeline for these students, because that's that's what we do is we develop compensations because we want to laser focus target right into that cognitive function to strengthen it. There's, there's a great quote from Norman Deutsch, one of the, the fathers of neuroplasticity in the book. He says, whenever you're working ahead of the curve, it can be quite a lonely place. And, and when you do programs like this, that some people would consider radical in an area like um, you know, neuro 
psychology and, and, and the education of children, there's always going to be people who are critical of that work. You would have heard some of the criticisms. The From what I can gather, the two sort of broad criticisms of this sort of stuff is you've got to be careful that it's not just anecdotal and lovely stories about kids who have changed from parents who love them and want to see change as opposed to hard, peer-reviewed science. This latest edition of the book comes with a whole chapter at the end of other research. Where do you think you are on the journey of having this now established in peer-reviewed, acknowledged science? I, I would say we're pretty far along that path in the last three years. Um, uh, you know, we have always been committed to research. This work is built on research. I mean, it was, it was built on Luria's research and, and Rosenzweig's research. And right from day one, every single individual I worked with I love data, so everybody was tested. I have a database with like millions of data points in it. So we we track every student through this this program. We've built in algorithms in terms of their movement through the program, and I would say over the last three years, there are multiple studies now that have been peer reviewed. So we've got over probably twenty studies, over about seven hundred students that have gone through various research studies across four countries, uh, six universities, and 11 of those have been peer-reviewed. Two have recently been published, and there are more that are in the pipeline to be published. And I would say that if we look at, at the, the research done by you know, different researchers, different research designs, they're all showing similar results. I, I think you know, the criticism you know, where some people say there isn't research might be valid if there's only one study. We have multiple studies. They're showing... Uh, for these students who are getting 50% less academics a day because they're in a cognitive program plus doing academics, they're outperforming students that are in academics all day because we're changing their cognitive capacity. We go to school to learn. We learn with our brain. You enhance the functioning of the brain. These students accelerate in the rate of learning, which we're seeing. We've got studies from Canada. We've got studies from the United States. We've got studies actually done here in Australia. Uh, we're looking at cognitive domains, so processing speed, working memory, reasoning, all changing you know, across multiple university studies. Uh, we're now doing studies in Madrid. A university in Madrid is looking at students just in regular classes doing one of my cognitive exercises. Um, that's going to be presented at a conference in Prague this summer. Uh, they're seeing students doing that reasoning exercise just in grade three, improving on visual spatial ability, executive functioning, attention. And now we're looking into the brain, which to me is really really exciting. And when the researchers are looking at what's happening in the brain of students with learning difficulties, they're finding a pattern of under-connectivity in some of these really critical neural networks. And that's where the learning difficulties are, the under-connected regions. And they're seeing the brains responding by hyper-connecting areas. So the theory is that, that the brain is trying to... Um, compensate by making parts work really, really hard, but they're not designed to do um, what those underfunctioning networks are doing, right? So it's a brain that's working really hard and really efficient, inefficiently. So that's why these kids get exhausted and their attention wanders. And what we're seeing as the students go through the program, and this is both at the University of British Columbia in Canada and Southern Illinois University in the States, is those underfunctioning areas are actually strengthening in connectivity for these students. And the hyper-connected areas are starting to tone down, and we're replicating that res research with people. The brain is sort of balancing, balancing itself. Balancing, yes. And we're seeing that with people with traumatic brain injury. We're doing um, studies now, again, at the University of British Columbia with a different group of researchers with people with acquired and traumatic brain injury, seeing the same pattern. And, and the, the, other, the other point that some people make when looking at this sort of work is that for a child who's got 
challenges in their learning. Any sort of focused one-on-one attention from someone who knows what they're doing is going to help in some way. And is there any real difference between this sort of program and any of the other sort of, in inverted commas, brain training or focusing that students might have given to them? So I would say it's not a one-on-one program. Uh, Every student is on their own individual program, but a teacher is working with 10 to 12 students simultaneously. And everyone, because it's like exercise in a sense, it's not a teacher standing imparting knowledge. So the 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 role of the teacher is more like a facilitator to ensure that the student's not using compensations, that they're moving through the exercises as design motivation. But every student, if you go into a classroom, what I call a cognitive classroom, where these students are doing the work, every student is like really, really focused on what they need to be mm. be doing. Um, and I would I would argue, you know, that again the research is showing like consistent gains in academic, cognitive, and we're actually looking at social-emotional changes. We're actually seeing reduction in cortisol in students going through the program, which is the stress hormone. We're seeing parents um, see, you know, know, improved social skills, adaptability, um, listening well, uh, you know, a lot of reduction in depression, anxiety for these students. So I I would argue, and we have had um, some studies that have compared students that are getting the Aerosmith intervention versus students that are getting traditional special education intervention. And on cognitive measures and academic measures, the students in the Aerosmith program are outperforming at significant levels the the other kinds of interventions. And, And so is your vision that more education in general, not just for children who face specific challenges when they're young, education in general should move to this model of more working on just cognitive capacity in the space of what was just academic learning for students and, and, and going for more of that balance of cognitive development for the sake of just cognitive development? That's my, my vision is that every child starting in year one does all the way through their elementary education or primary education gets one cognitive exercise a day. So 30 to 40 minutes a day, five days a week. And we, we have studies on that. So in grade one, we do motor planning, which is critical for learning how to, to write, uh, eye tracking and reading. Grade two, we would do the symbol recognition, that visual activity that I described that's critical for spelling and, and word recognition. Grade three, we do, we've got a program for numeracy, understanding quantification, understanding number. Grade four, we'd add the reasoning, the exercise I created for myself. Grade five, we do executive functioning, thinking, planning, problem solving. In grade six, we do the nonverbal interpretation of situations. And then it would just be a normal part of curriculum because there's still tremendous stigma out there if you have a learning difficulty. There's there's still today in 2020 misunderstanding, misinformation, and still that attitude that those kids are different, not in a positive way. So this would just normalize it because everybody is going to school to enhance cognitive function. And then for the students that might need a few more components because they have more areas, the school could have a cognitive classroom where those students might go in for two more periods to work on one area. So that's that's my vision. And there, there are schools now um, that are talking about implementing that. It's, it's an amazing mission. It's a very challenging one. Just before we started chatting, you were racing through your phone, working out how certain schools were going to deal with the coronavirus and things like that. So you've got a very full platter. I'm so glad that you've spent some time with us today explaining your theory. Thank you so much for joining us, Barbara Arismith-Young. Thank you very much. Great. 
This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions. 